0: All right, did I, did I hear that correctly that I've got until 11.30? <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> oh, just kidding, I would never do that to you. But I do wanna begin quickly this morning with a, a bit of, of housekeeping and update on behalf of our leadership board. Uh, so uh, about six months ago, we contracted uh, with a consultant called the Foresight Group, and we engaged them uh, to help us kind of think through some best practices, some questions that we have coming out of uh, sort of the height of the pandemic to help us clarify and focus on some things. And so they are uh, they have been helping us for the, the past few months get some some renewed clarity on our mission and vision as a church. And so the, the our the way of thinking about this is, why as a church do we exist uniquely as this sort of body for this time in this place with these people? Like, why are we here? And how can we look to our past for clues about how to do that? Uh, in what God is doing in our future. And then we've used that to have some conversations as a staff on how we uh, go about relating to our mission and vision and to each other. And it's been a really, really exciting and energizing and helpful Uh, experience to kind of bring up some questions and and bring some things into focus. And I'm super, super excited to begin uh, opening up this conversation that we can join in. We're we're now at the point where we've got some clarity on the types of questions that we're we're engaging moving forward. And so I just want to give you a save the date right now, because all of it is going to start coming. We're going to give you some teasers uh, leading up to this, but save the date, Because on Sunday, January 22nd, 2023, all the way next year, (laughs) will be our congregational meeting. And uh, this congregational meeting is going to be a little different than if you've ever been to a congregational meeting here before. That's going to be a little bit different. Uh, We're going to have some conversation around the conversations that we've been having uh, with the consultant. Don't worry. We will also approve the budget for those of you worried about that. Uh, But that will be coming up Sunday, January 22nd, so save the date. You won't want to miss it. It'll be a great opportunity. So from there, that will lead us obviously and clearly into the 44th funniest joke of all time, (laughs) according to GQ magazine. Now, I have no idea uh, their methodology and how they were able to tag onto this of all time. Like did they dig up some, you know, some tablets from, uh, you know, Mesopotamia in the Bronze Age where somebody had, you know, scribbled out their stand-up routine on, on some? I, I don't, I don't know how they determined of all time, but let's, you know, there's just the, the qualifier there. They identified this joke uh, by the comedian Emo Phillips. A- anybody ever heard of Emo Phillips? Yeah. That's sort of a downer. <laughs> uh, but, so, but so is this joke, so buckle up. But this is the 40th, 44th funniest joke of all time, okay? So at the end, give it your 44th funniest joke of all time, meest laugh, all right? So here's how it goes. Uh, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Ah, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Ah, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. I'm ah, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? (laughs) Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915? And he said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915. I said, die, heretic, and pushed him off. It's fine. I didn't, I didn't write it. Uh, I look forward to your email later this week. But we, we laugh in, in this sort of dark way because I think deep down, deep down, we, we hear this joke and we realize that it's actually not. It's actually not a joke. That we, more often than not, have equated acceptance of people with agreement on positions. Amen. That we as followers of Jesus or as people in general have tended to be more like this joke than not. We, we clarify, and we, we take for granted all of this common ground that we have. And then we take the one difference that may be between us, and we blow it up to insane proportions, and we make it the thing that divides us. We have too often equated acceptance of people with agreement on positions, whether political, theological, or otherwise, and therefore we have made our love conditional, judgmental, and ultimately centered on something other than Jesus. And when this happens, the church loses its saltiness and it dims its light and forfeits its ability to serve as the visible destination to which the culture should eventually arrive. As Dr. Uh, Crawford Loritz puts it Equating acceptance with agreement is a symptom that we're engaged in culture war thinking, which turns us against flesh and blood, rather than recognizing that the real battle is a spiritual one that reveals the sinful tribalism that lurks within each one of us, and that's as old as Cain and Abel, and as active as ever despite our lofty notions of freedom and progress. This is why we're having this conversation about faithfully following Jesus in the midst of of an election cycle, and in advance of, a, of holiday table conversations, which conveniently, uh, there was a, an announcement this week that a particular political candidate would be running for the highest office in the land. And I kid you not, I had four different conversations this week with four different people, and the first thing that was mentioned was, did you hear? The first thing. And we're about to sit around tables this holiday season where people are going to throw that out to us as bait, or we are going to use that ourselves as bait to divide and separate how we live and who we love. And so that's why we're looking at becoming follow- people who are followers of Jesus have engaged in something called conscientious objection, that we are thinking of ways that we cannot be drafted against our will, perhaps, or go against the sort of cultural duty of engaging in these culture war battles. And so over the last three weeks, we've been wrestling with the tension of this question. Is it possible for Jesus followers to disagree politically and still be committed to each other relationally? Yes. And so we've been looking at three priorities of Jesus followers, Three things that Jesus' followers need to hold as higher priorities than other things that claim our priorities and attention in the world. And so the first was that we place people over politics. We look to honor and dignify the image of God within everyone before assessing and fighting over their political position or identity. And secondly, we look at responsibility over our identity. And we looked last week at the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan, which is a story all about what do we do when the people we think are wrong get it right, according to Jesus? And how do we love like that? And then today we're going to look at love over everything. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to love the world as Jesus loves the world, which is from a posture of self-sacrifice and other orientation, a love that creates community rather than divides it, and a love that embraces even its enemies, a love that entered into the world to save it, not to condemn it with judgmentalism and tribalism and line drawing, and this last dimension of Jesus-style love, enemy-embracing love, that we're going to explore this—we're going to explore it this morning—to help illuminate this third priority by looking at Jesus' definitive teaching on love over everything which our Bible, uh, and this teaching from Jesus is called the Sermon on the Mount, which our tradition sort of considers the Bible within the Bible. This is what we look at as like, what Jesus says here is what it is. And this is an eyewitness account that we're gonna look, look at, written by one of Jesus' followers, who most of Jesus' other followers would have considered their enemy, Matthew. Because before he was a Jesus follower, he was a Jewish tax collector, meaning he worked for the Roman Empire, meaning, in other words, he was a traitor who was colluding with the evil pagans to extort his own people, uh, to pad his own wallet, and to expand the empire's unjust rule. And so what we're about to read isn't just theoretical abstraction, but is already a lived reality within Jesus' first Followers. So Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to look at four verses, verses 43 through 47. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, whether or not this was a, an actual saying, like, you know, that was on a bumper sticker or, or a, a political yard sign at the time, is not the point. This is just sort of how the world works. This is a taken-for-granted default position of the human soul that relates to this, its similar kind with love and those who are different from it with suspicion and hate and outrage and judgmentalism. We say, no, you are out on the outside of the lines that we have drawn over here and over here, and therefore, we relate to you differently. People who are inside our tribe they belong, people who are outside do not. So love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, but I tell you, but I tell you. This is Jesus being Lord even over the Bible. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute You, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. (laughs) This is mind-boggling. This is mind-boggling. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, those people who would actively seek to do do you harm. You are supposed to offer them the highest possible form of love, which is to bring them into the presence of God and wish for their flourishing even as they plot your demise. Love your enemies. And as uh, the biblical scholar Dale Bruner uh, helps us see what Jesus is saying here, he writes, Jesus now lays down a first principle. Authentic Christianity, Jesus style Christianity is not expressed as often as we think by a zeal against the enemies of God. However, we might define who the enemies of God might be. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is defined by one's desire and ability and ability to love your enemy. We could put it in in different words and say, how does one become a Christian according to Jesus? (laughs) By loving their enemies. It's not by praying a one-time prayer that provides afterlife insurance or voting a particular way or holding strongly onto beliefs of things that Jesus seems relatively silent on. The way that we become Christian is by loving our enemies. And the implication of what Jesus is saying is that also his followers will be called the children of their father in heaven, which is to say that we, in loving our enemies, bear a striking resemblance to God by relating to others the way that God relates to you. Embracing enemies. Jesus continues, if you love those who love you, Oh, sorry, one more before that, he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus here, I don't want us to miss this, Jesus illustrates enemy love with the rising of the sun And the falling of the rain. Stuff that simply happens. It exists. It's there. It's a fact of nature. And so the fact that God has love for God's enemies is simply a fact. But here's also an implication here is where this doesn't exist, where the sun doesn't rise and the rain doesn't fall, life cannot flourish. Jesus continues. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And Matthew's like, "Ouch!" But yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this is a little rabbit trail. But this last week, I, I, I've mentioned before that uh, my three-year-old son Beckett was in, uh, you know, kind of rec league soccer for the first time this year, and and that end of the year party was on Wednesday night, and they uh, they handed out medals you know, with number one on it to all all of the, all of the kids and Beckett was like, "I won. <laughs> I won soccer." <laughs> I was like, "No, everyone got them." He's like, what did everyone win?" <laughs> And so, I then tried and failed to explain participation trophies to my Uh, (laughs) three-year-old. So, if any of you have strategies there, I would be grateful. But, like, you love those who love you? Cool. Participation trophy. You don't win not even the tax collectors, or not even the people you despise. They even do that. It continues, And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? In other words, Jesus is saying that the people who have either no view of God at all or completely distorted views of God and love and reality are able to love the people who are like them and to greet the people who are like them. And so, I mean, this, this pushes into our territory of, of you know, like, it, you don't have to be a Christian in order to be a good person. You can be a good person just by being But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, in order to be a Christian, more is expected of you. More is expected of followers of Jesus than relating to other followers of Jesus that they agree with. Love even your enemies. And then Jesus caps it off with a slam dunk. Be perfect therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there is lots of opportunity to miss the point and completely discard everything that Jesus has just said because you're like, perfect. I can't do that. That's Jesus' job description. Okay, you did that for me, so therefore, I don't have to do any of this. We just toss it out. But let's look to C.S. Lewis to help us understand this. He writes, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, which would be a great name for a a gas station. (laughs) Nor is it a command to do the impossible. Be perfect, I'm imperfect, impossible. God is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. This is the promise of following Jesus is that we would become perfect not in some abstract sense of there's a ledger that is completely zeroed out of our performance. What it means is the, the, the Greek word here for perfect is whole or complete. Have a full range of motion in other words and for love to have a full range of motion it needs to be able to reach out and embrace even the enemies of love that's what it means to be perfect and by following jesus who is the perfection of love we become the types of people who can give perfect love which by the way one of jesus followers would say later that this type of love gets rid of all fear, displaces all suspicion, all labeling and categorization. This is the type of love that we are called to go to school in learning how to give it. And what is the school for learning this type of love? How do we become the types of people who can be perfect as God is perfect? The school for this love is the church. The way we become apprentices of Jesus is by learning to follow Jesus alongside other followers of Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, okay, well, I I look around and I've got a lot in common with a lot of the people around here. So where is is necessarily, is that challenging? Well, the theologian, biblical scholar D.A. Carson Uh, who I disagree with on lots of things. I agree with him completely on what he says here about the ideal nature of the church, the school of love. The church is not ideally made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds the church together is not common education, shout out to FPU, common race, Common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Amen. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. What do you have in common with the, people, with the person you have nothing in common with? Jesus died for both of you. Jesus sees that person as irreplaceably lovable. And so the challenge is, can I? Can I see you as Jesus sees you? Can you see me as Jesus sees me? This leads me to an incredible story from over 100 years ago. It was Christmas Eve 1914 in the middle of World War I. And on Christmas Eve, on the Western Front, dug into trenches on either side of a gruesome and blood-filled battlefield are German and English troops, enemies, fighting each other. And it's Christmas Eve, and an account of one of the British soldiers uh, describes the, the sound of singing coming from the, the, the German foxhole. And while they couldn't make out the words, they could understand the tune. And they were, they were singing Silent Night. And so they began to sing songs of Jesus' birth, back and forth to each other. And then eventually this singing caused them to emerge from their foxholes and engage in a ceasefire. And they started talking and reading the story of Jesus' birth. And then they started sharing cigars and wine and they partied and celebrated together all through the night these mortal enemies, who hours before were actively trying to kill each other, are now singing together about the presence and power of Jesus. And then this turned into, the next morning, a soccer match. And they just kept playing with each other. And they had a full-blown Christmas service together where they are recounting the story of the life of Jesus. And here's what is absolutely taking this from like unfathomable unfathomable to like miraculous. Is that as this account was shared with the world, other people from other parts of both the Western and Eastern Front said, oh yeah, that happened with us too. These uncoordinated ceasefires from across enemy lines all centered around the story of Jesus. And here's where it gets even crazier. Every nation that was represented in World War I on Christmas Day 1914 was engaged in a ceasefire because of Christmas. The point here being that the presence of Jesus, the story of Jesus, has the power, it is the only thing in the world powerful enough to overcome our differences. And division, our polarization and our suspicion of others. It is the story of Jesus that has the power to do this. We cannot do this any other way than with the story of Jesus, which is the story of difference being brought in together. What Scott McKnight, the theologian, calls a fellowship of difference, with a T-S, different people being brought together because of the story of Jesus, united around a common person and a common mission, but not uniform in the expression. This is what it means. And now I know that some of you are thinking, well, I know how this story ends. (laughs) On December 26, 1914, the battle began again. And has continued ever since the story hasn't made all wars end yet but it's coming but how then do we as followers of jesus who recognize the power of this story who see the potential and possibility for Bridging the, the bridging of gaps and the reconciliation of people who see and value things differently. How do we overcome the inertia, the sinful inertia that would take us from a ceasefire to locked in relational cold wars by the end of the service? Now, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul, he was writing exactly to this type of situation and scenario within the church in Galatia. That there are two groups, Jew and Gentile, who are brought together and unified, sharing table fellowship in the church, which was a huge, massive deal. And Peter, who was like Mr. Mr. Gentile, the Jew who had transformed himself by the story of Jesus to embrace the people who he had never eaten with before in his life. He had never not eaten kosher, and now he is eating non-kosher food around a table with people who had previously been his enemies until there were some people who came into the church and was like, hey, hey, hey let's just be like separate but equal here. They can come in, but let's not share table fellowship together. Let's not share food and meals together. We can coexist, we can tolerate one another's presence, but when it comes to actual living, relating to each other on equal terms, eh, we're not going to do that. And so, over time, Peter eventually separates himself from table fellowship with the Gentiles. And and. And it engages back in sort of fellowship with the Jews exclusively. And so Paul calls him in to the fullness of the story of Jesus. And he says, For before certain men, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, Peter's like, Ooh, hey, my my bosses are here. I don't want this to look too suspicious. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid, perfect love casts out all fear, of those who belong to the circumcision group. This was the dividing line issue of the early church, circumcision or not. In order to be followers of Jesus, do male converts from Male Gentile converts need to be circumcised. Do we need to set up a little surgery booth outside in the lobby before they come in? This is the the issue. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, who is, his name means son of encouragement. He's like, yeah, come on. Barnabas is where the party's at. And now Barnabas turns his back on his Gentile brothers and sisters. You see, Paul engages this conflict in the early church because what it means to be the church It means to be in relationship within the church with people who are different than you, who value things that are different than you, who look at the world in ways that are different from you, who have different approaches to the same things that you have your preferred way of doing it. What it means to be the church is to have Jesus in common, and to let that be enough. And when we can do this in the church, it begins to change the world around the church. And so as we wrap up this series, I want to get as practical as I possibly can. This series has not been about not being politically engaged or active. It's just about properly orienting ourselves to something that is not of ultimate concern. What, where we begin and where we can begin right now today is simply this, changing the world begins with changing who you sit with at lunch. Changing the world begins with changing who you sit with at lunch. If you are going to stick around, and I really hope that you do, for our Friendsgiving meal, the invitation is for you to overcome the inertia and the gravitational pull of sitting around people that you always sit around. To overcome the gravitational pull of sitting with your own generational cohort. Of sitting with people who you know already agree with you. The invitation is to connect with somebody different than you. And then, from there, your task is to get insanely, not insanely, really curious (laughs) about them. To listen, to be slow to speak and quick to listen. My default assumption and approach to interpersonal relationships is that I and you and we are always one question away from the most interesting conversation you've ever been in. One question away from saying, oh, they make sense now, I get it, I understand when we're slow to speak and engaged in listening, we are actually being loving. As David Augsburg kind of summarizing this study on listening and loving puts it, being heard, being listened to, being truly understood is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Feeling listened to is being loved. And so the way to love your enemies, whether around the table in the gym or around the holiday table or whatever table you find yourself in at work or in the community or whatever you do, you find yourself across the table from somebody who sees the world differently than you, your task as a follower of Jesus is to listen. May we be people who listen well to others. May we be people who love others by listening well, and may our listening communicate to the world that God so loves the world that he came to save and not to condemn. May it be so, North Fresno Church.